Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 203 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, you know, on TMK, we talk about a lot of things. But two things we have, we have spent extensive time and episodes talking about is, on one hand, the crypto economy. Obviously, this is something of, uh, of, of dear interest for Ed and I and Jeremy. You know, we, we spend a lot of time, probably too much time, picking it apart talking to people uh, involved in analyzing it in some ways, right? So crypto economy on one hand, and on the other hand, you know, we have spent a lot of time talking about things like, you know, ESG, right? Environmental and social governance, talking about the big asset managers and financiers like BlackRock that are really driving forward this idea of green finance, right? That that you can make capitalism sustainable and also make money while doing it. You know, we talked about these two different elements. Well, we haven't talked about the overlap, the collision between them a whole lot. And I'm very happy to have with us today uh, Avi Asher Shapiro, who is a, a report, an investigative journalist and reporter at Reuters, who, along with his colleague Fabio, uh, has done uh, some really, really great reporting on this collision between uh, kind of carbon assets, carbon credits, you know, green finance and, you know, cryptocurrency, uh, securitization, tokenization, all of that. And, you know, as Avi was telling us before we got recording, the kind of collision of these two forces or these two uh, airy industries really reveals a lot about each of them, reveals new things. So Avi, thanks for joining us. Uh, very happy to have you on. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So the, your, your reporting with Fabio itself is really interesting and, and, and kind of complex because this is such a, it, it is like, you know, a complex area finance and, you know, especially when you're on the forefront of these kind of new financial instruments are always complex. But importantly, I think not because they are inherently like complex things, but because they are made to, to be overly complex and convoluted. They're, they're not very transparent in terms of how they work. And I, 
my my theory here is that this is a way of keeping people from looking under the hood and being like, what what's going on here? Um, so I'm curious, what was your and Fabio's entry point even into studying this kind of collision between green finance and crypto? Yeah, that's a, that's a a good point and a good question. I think both of us came at this from slightly different perspectives. Um, I was reporting for about you know over a year now on on sort of the long running debate between Bitcoin mining industry and environmentalists, just because I was interested in areas where you could get your hands on something when it came to covering crypto. You know, there was a lot of uh, abstraction, uh, but I was looking for points of entry where something was actually happening in the physical world, where something was actually real. Um, and so that first led me to, you know, Bitcoin mining fights, which are, you know, data center fights, which are just, you know, very old school land use energy. You know, you can really report on them. You can talk to real people. You can see things. And that led me to, personally to start asking questions of like, what are, you know, there's this perennial debate about like, what is the problem that crypto is really trying to solve? And you try to ask, you know, experts this and you can, you can get quickly into kind of galaxy brain mode. Um, so I was looking for things that were like actually concrete. And, and, and when I talked to people, you know, more and more I started hearing, well, you know, there's a real problem with green finance, with carbon markets, and we're actually solving it right now. You know, I, I, what, what I would hear from people in, the crypto world who are interested in sort of the regenerative finance scene, which is this broader scene of trying to use web three stuff to, to, to um, solve environmental stuff. So from my side, I was like, okay, like here's a value proposition that people in the industry are saying, like, we've got a solution for this thing. Like, let's, let's go see if that's real. Fabio, who I wish was here was my reporting partner based in Brazil covers, you know, is a hardcore investigative reporter in Brazil who covers, uh, you know, slavery and supply chains, issues around deforestation in the Amazon. And he's, you know, really interested in, in greenwashing and those types of things in Brazil. And he started to notice more and more projects propping up, cropping up in Brazil, making claims about helping to save the Amazon that were branded as Web3 or crypto. So we both sort of had this these moments simultaneously, and we decided to sort of take a big swing at one of these projects as a way of figuring out what was happening with all these people in Brazil who were saying they were saving the Amazon using crypto. And also, from my perspective, my curiosity of like, what's a real world problem that crypto says it can solve, which is green finance, carbon markets. So that, that, sort of, that was sort of the reason why we, we, we started looking into this, which was like, I don't know, almost like a year ago, probably at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like uh, there, there's a bit of an irony here, too, where this is, of course, a, as you are well aware, one of the major criticisms levied at crypto is its environmental impact, right? Like the energy usage, uh, the ca- the carbon emissions that come from especially this kind of Bitcoin mining, you know, high computational intensity mining uh and so this is one of the major criticisms of this. It's the entire reason why, you know, the Ethereum merge happened going towards, uh, you know, proof of stake, right? Which is meant to, according to, you know, the Ethereum Foundation's own estimates, right? Like drop the carbon uh, intensity of the blockchain by 99% and do all of this stuff. And so, 
it almost seems like this whole stuff around refi, which of course they always have to have some, you know, uh, some some uh, name like that, DeFi, regenerative fi, you know, finance refi. But it seems like a lot of the the uh, the impetus around this as well is like kind of trying to solve its own problems internally, right? In a lot of ways, using uh, fighting fire with fire, right? Like if if the if if our technology is creating you know all of this environmental. Uh, impact. Well, if if we just used the same technology uh, more and differently, then it will fix that environmental impact. Like that kind of seems to be some of the logic here. Yeah, I think from, you know, there is some of that, especially kind of like a, from a PR perspective. Um, but I also think there is just a fundamental fact that what um, you can do with, you know, with tokenomics is you can create a market with a market clearing mechanism immediately overnight, you know, and that's really, if there is a core innovation here with blockchains and cryptocurrencies, it's the ability for anyone to sort of spin up, uh, you know, a market, um, and to create a currency that the market is denominated in overnight. And, and, and that, you know, so that has allowed people who think that the main problem or one of the main problems in green finance is that there aren't enough markets, and there aren't enough efficient markets that exist to finance, you know, all sorts of discrete green activity, including, you know, paying people not to cut down trees or paying people to, you know, use renewable energy or whatever it is that, that, that the real gap is one in which of, of uh, one in which there aren't enough efficient markets. It's a, it is a natural fit if that's what you really think is the problem, right? So I think that there is there is sure there is a sort of like attack on proof of work mining um, and that, you know, you can, some people who are sort of defenders of the crypto ecosystem more broadly would say, well, you know, we're also doing a lot of green stuff. Look over here. But I also think there is just a, a more natural reason why crypto people are attracted to green finance because they, they, they feel like um, there's all these new markets to be made. Right. Um, in, 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 and, and they, the pitch, if you talk to green finance people who are refi people, is they, they'll point to the studies that are done by McKinsey or the World Bank that say we've got trillions of dollars in gaps of green. What we need, you know, we, we need, you know, trillions of dollars to flow to green projects around the world. And, you know, we, we don't have a way of directing that flow. So, you know, we will do that with tokens and, you know, new ecosystems that will all be, you know, on the blockchain. And so they, they, they do, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, who think it's a natural fit. How how did these people end up finding one another? I mean, we've talked on the pod a bit about, you know, like Henry Paulson and his efforts with the Conservancy uh, Board, I think the name is, to, to try and introduce quantification of nature um, and, and, a lot, and arguing that nature or efforts to convert some of nature to an asset would allow us to properly price uh, pollution and, and, and disincentivized logging and pollution of water sources and exhaustion of resources. So how, how do these people find or connect to crypto folks who, like, as you point out, are looking for one way or another technologies that make it, that reduce the friction that might be inherent in creating a new 
market and an asset to you know gin, uh, gin up or get capital flowing around in that market? I mean, was it just that it because it seems to be a natural fit? These people found each other. Were there, were there sort of key nodes that have emerged or firms that have emerged that have been big players in in this green finance plus crypto space? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, and I think one of the things that is just kind of mind blowing about this is like the major biggest project that has emerged around this, which is called KlimaDAO. You know, the people who run it are anonymous or pseudonymous. Right? So, I mean, like we don't even know who they are. I mean, p- people know who they are, but they're not public who they are, right? So, like, there is an element of like, um, you know, lack of transparency around who the main players might be in this world. I think there's there's a couple different camps, you know, there are some like people who have come from carbon markets which have existed for decades who are people who have, they're carbon traders, people who have um, you know, taken advantage of this market, you know, the voluntary carbon market which exists which is basically like a world for corporations to make green uh, pronouncements and they p- purchase offsets in order to make public claims about offsetting their emissions. And this is, you know, a relatively large industry. I think, you know, it's, it's projected to be, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the, in the, in the coming years. It's not massive, but it's big enough that there is a ecosystem here. There are forward exchanges. There's there on this Chicago mercantile exchange. They have, you can buy forwards for, you know, a certain kind of carbon credit. So, I mean, there's an existing financialized ecosystem for carbon credits. Um, it's relatively mature, and then there's trading desks that exist within you know major banks that do this. Um, so some of those people, I think, have 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 gravitated to crypto as as a. And then there are people who are just in crypto who are like, "What's a you know what's a cool thing that I could do?" Um, what's and 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 so there's different. And and and, and there's a lot of factions. Honestly, I mean, there's a lot of people within this world who will say like. The crypto people don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand carbon. It's more complicated, and the carbon people will say the crypto people don't, you know, don't understand. So there's a kind of like a lot of finger pointing once you get into these, to the weeds here, because um, as as you said, you know, this is so complicated. Like, and it, it like any complicated market. Like, yo, just to say, like, so if you look at uh, uh, carbon. If you look at carbon offsets, there's like all these different kinds, right? There's nature based solutions. You're buying. You're paying people to stop. Uh, cutting down trees. Then there's ones that are, you know, renewable energy, where you're paying someone to do renewable energy in a situation where it would not be profitable otherwise for them to be renewable and energy. Then there's people who are, you know, uh, trying to, you know, uh, do like agricultural pro- projects or trying to restore land. And then there's people who are just preserving land. And each one of these credits have different certifications. There's whole bodies that exist. They get like different grades and they all like they have different years and different vintages so the amount of like information asymmetry possible in this world where you're trading all of these things which are like basically trying to as you said ed trying to abstract something that's happening in nature which is basically measured again against a counterfactual which is like what would happen if you didn't finance it oh they would cut down the forest or oh they wouldn't use green energy basically paying someone to take this certain route like it's it, there's layers and layers of abstraction. So there's a lot of room for people to, you know, engage in arbitrage who have more information than someone else to buy something, sell it for something else more than it's worth. There's very few people who actually understand all the nooks and crannies of it because fundamentally trying to pay money, pay someone money to do something differently to a piece of natural land is, you know, to, to actually quantify that with it, a price and float it on a marketplace 
is just incredibly abstract, you know, and it's, and it's incredibly complicated. And, you know, you'll see a war of, you know, this this happened in California, for example, where they were trying to incentivize people to preserve uh, trees, but then they had some people figured out that the calculation they were using for the density of trees was a little bit off. So all these people did this arbitrage where they bought this kind of special kind of forest where they could make more money because of the they figured out there was a little bit of a hole in the formula, and then all these traders just like laughed all the way to the bank. So like you know when you marketize these things, what you have is you have a bunch of people coming in being like, how do I set up a scheme where I take advantage of some like little flaw that I've identified. And I exploit it to make a bunch of money, right? So, and then you stand, enter the crypto people, you're, you know, off to the races, right? Um, because those dynamics already existed in the carbon markets before the crypto people showed up. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing is when people do find uh, an ar- an opportunity to arbitrage and you know undermine some uh, some some you know market based scheme that's meant to lead to some social or environmental uh, outcome, and then you know they they find this arbitrage point, ru- you know, completely ruin the scheme, make a lot of money, and then. It's, it's, you know, on top of that, my favorite thing is when they then oftentimes justify it by saying they're just working to make the markets more efficient, right? Like, like that's their role in the market is by doing, finding and exploiting arbitrage opportunities. They're actually doing a, a, a morally righteous thing by improving the efficiency of the market rather than, rather than, you know, the obvious thing is like, well, I mean, no one made you do that. <laughs> like, what? Like, you you did that, right? Like, and you made a lot of money, and you undermined this whole scheme. But there does seem to be, like, oftentimes this need to, especially in these spaces, like, create some kind of moral justification for 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 why they're why they're doing what from the outside looks like. You know, plainly like a uh, simple, you know, Wall Street financier arbitrage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's exactly what we found in our story. So our story focuses on this company called Moss, which is a Brazilian company which claims to be the inventor of the first green digital asset in the world, which is its token called the MCO2 token, which is supposed to correspond to every token is one, you know, ton of carbon that wasn't you know, that was basically wasn't uh, cut down out of a forest in the Amazon because they gave money to the owner of the forest to not cut down the trees that would be represented by that one ton of carbon. And this is a token that you can buy on, you know, Coinbase or Gemini or, you know, any old place. Um, And they, uh, yeah, so, you know, they, you know, just, there was a lot of, you know, sneaky stuff that was going on, but just to give a very, concrete example is, you know, in carbon credits, there's something called, uh, you know, social carbon, which is, you know, it's one thing to go not cut down the forest, but like, what is the impact on the community? Often, like if that, if, if, if there was logging going on in that forest that was benefiting the local community and it's an indigenous community, and then you've, you've stopped them from logging, like, is that really a net good? And a lot, and like the basic carbon credit model doesn't take that into account. But then there's social, there's social carbon where they'll have like a separate layer of review where they'll go in and try to make sure, okay, like you didn't screw over this community. Maybe you created some jobs. And, you know, those credits, this is like in the weeds, but those credits sell for a lot more. If I'm like Pepsi and I want to say I, I ups, offset all of my um, 
you know, we, we, we did all our emissions offsets. They don't want to be caught doing it in a forest where they screwed over the local indigenous population too, right? So they pay extra for someone to go over it in and do this social carbon score. What the company that we found, Moss, what they did is they bought a bunch of credits that didn't have the social carbon score. They're cheaper. And they bought some credits that had the social carbon score. And then they mixed them together into a pool. And then they issued a token for that uh, for the for, and said these are the highest quality possible carbon credits in the world. And then we went in and started looking like at the underlying quality of the credits. And lo and behold, we found wait a second, these aren't the highest possible quality. Those not these don't have the social carbon score. These are not desirable credits. These were just sitting on the shelf, right? So to do that, you have to know a lot about how carbon markets work. You have to know that these social credit ones are much more desirable and that big corporations are much more likely to buy those. And then you can come in and you can bundle them together. You can turn them to a token and then you can sell them to retail investors who don't know about this gradations of social credit thing. They just hear carbon credit and they buy, right? So like that's one small example of how you can use like your knowledge of the market, a potential inefficiency there, this different, this arbitrage opportunity between these different types of accreditations, which is super boring. But at the end of the day, like what you end up being able to do is make a lot of money. You know, they, they were able to buy these credits for like $2 and 50 cents uh, from the producers. And then they were able to go turn to corporations and say, yeah, this costs, uh, this is going to cost you 17 bucks, you know, and, and they would do it. Right. So that, that's, and, and, and they, this don't, you, you, congratulations. You bought the first world, the world's first green digital asset. You know, so like, I think that that gives you a sense of how um, Byzantine some of these arrangements can be, and and you know the 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 people who were doing it at, at this Brazilian cryptocurrency company, you know, studied these markets for a long time. You know, they came from um, you know the banking world, the investment banking world. You know, uh, had a, you know very sophisticated financial actors to be able to identify these opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this points as well to something. You know, you mentioned the McKinsey report earlier, and in your, you know, in in your piece, you you write that quote. Uh, a 2021 McKinsey report, report pointed to a gap of about $4 trillion in funding over the next 30 years to expand green energy and preserve nature on the scale needed to curb climate change. The report said voluntary carbon markets are, quote, critical to raising and channeling this flow of funding and could grow in value to between 5 billion and 180 billion by 2030 depending on the type of projects preferred up from just over 1 billion dollars in 2021 i mean this hyper like like i think that really gives a uh, a, a nice view of how big of a gap there is between these different quality or different types of voluntary carbon markets and and carbon assets a gap of somewhere between 5 billion and 180 billion is not a, a, a standard deviation in statistical analysis. You know, like it, I think it really shows on one hand that there, that a lot of this is just based on so much speculation 
and on the other hand, it shows that there is like this really stark divide uh, or gradient between the lowest quality, uh, you know, carbon credits, assets, or other or otherwise methods of doing these markets, and the highest quality that you just kind of laid out there. And 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 with a hundred and seventy-five billion dollar gap, uh, it seems like for the the company like Moss, and we can definitely get more into the concrete uh, the concrete case of of the investigation here, but. It seems like for these companies, that's $175 billion of arbitrage opportunity in their eyes. Yeah, I think the thing that's really you know, important to keep in mind uh, is that these are kind of classic supply chain issues on a certain level. And that's why having you know my colleague Fabio working on this with me was so helpful because he, he spent years rooting out forced labor in supply chains of international corporations. And that's, you know, that's what he specializes in. And in a lot of ways, you know, this is looking at just carbon offset supply chain issues, right? And and this is just going to happen when your way of dealing with an externality, like, uh, you know, is, is to try to offload it on to some community uh, halfway across the world, that there's where there's very little oversight, and that's what that's what's happening in these cases, right? I mean, like um, you know, one of the other carbon projects that we looked into was is called Madre de Dios in Peru. They had sold like you know hundreds of thousands of carbon credits from this forest, and like I just looked in, I just looked into it a bit, and with the help of a, a reporter based in, in Peru named Dan Collins and. We just found like the guy, one of the guys who owns this product is like just been accused of being like one of the biggest gangsters in Peru. Uh, like, and he, like a Chinese gangster who was like accused of being like a kingpin and running like an illegal logging ring that dominated the state of Madre de Dios. And he also happens to help run this carbon offset scheme that he's selling. Right. And no one, no one like it was it was kind of like the equivalent of like figuring out that your uh you know your Adidas are being made by like Uyghurs or something, right? It's just like no one did the work, no one cared, no one went and looked at who these people were because it was in the middle of the Amazon in Peru, right? And like there, so there's a kind of element of uh out of sight, out of mind uh with these, you know, with these green finance schemes because the the places in the world where they're going to happen, right, are the places where the nature needs this protection. It's going to be Indo- the Indonesia, you know, Brazil, Peru, far flung places. There's no, there's no independent media in these places. You know, you're, 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 you don't have people who are checking up on these things, and you're paying people to like not cut down a forest, and like it, it just very quickly it becomes very difficult to verify what people are saying they're doing. And when the incentives are for people to, as you say, like, you know, sell middlemen to come in and sell access to these, to this credit, um, the incentives are for everyone to look the other way. Like who, who wants to go find out that there's the guy on the other end of the carbon transaction is a Chinese gangster. Like no one wants to know that information, right? They, they want to just like be able to release a, you know, a press release saying we've gone carbon neutral. Like no one wants to do that. Right. So I think that there's a sort of perverse incentive at play um, here that, 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 that we, that, you know, then when it becomes tokenized, uh, and it turns into a, a, an asset that's speculated upon uh, by retail investors and crypto buyers and sellers takes on a whole new life. Um, 
Because then when you start buying and selling these uh, tokens, you don't even know what project they're linked to, right? You don't even know. I mean, it's just like this is a carbon offset that was, uh, you know, from a project that was, you know, you're like three levels of ex- extrapolation away. Um, and, you know, and there's some deeply profound things going on here, right? That this this attempt to flatten out for like it to be a completely fungible thing, like one unit of helping the environment is the exact same as another unit and they're completely fungible. And it's like, you know, this thing in Brazil is going to be the same as this thing in Peru, which is going to be the same as this thing in Indonesia. And we just want it to be this flat plane that we can like buy, sell a trade and build derivatives on top of like, that's, you know, often at odds with just the way the world works. You know, and, and that, so it becomes a problem. I think you're really identifying here a lot of the, the kind of the the key you know processes of finance. You know, around abstraction, standardization, all of these things that then allow for them to be you know securitized. Uh, you know, as you're saying, build derivatives on top of you know, uh, take out options. You know, futures contracts and things like that. Right. You you need a forest in Peru to be treated as a forest in Amazon, as a forest in China. Like they all need to be exactly the same. Otherwise, your big green, you know, your big green washing machine that you then use to, you know, throw money in to launder some of that money, you know, through the carbon markets, or you throw a variety of quality of carbon credits in and then out pops, you know, one standard securitized bundle. Like, you know, if, you know, as you're, as you're saying, right, like that green washing machine starts breaking down if you start really, you know, um, disaggregating uh, or disabstract, deabstracting uh, all of the, the things that make it work. That's right. And I think it's, it's important to say that there are people working in this space who are deeply committed to saving these, have you know, to, to saving these forests, and are not, you know, and are, are working in good faith, and 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 would say, and I think there are, um, you know, examples of it working, right? I mean, it's these these bodies that certify, like th- this att- this attempt towards standardization that I'm talking about has been undertaken by people who you know are trying to do something that's very hard, which is to figure out a way of standardizing the preservation of nature so they can, you know, quantify it for the markets. But the people who are doing it are, you know, these are often like, you know, forestry experts who really want to figure out a way so that we can quantify the preservation of nature, not to make money, but because they believe if we can't fully quantify what's happening, we won't be able to prevent it. Right. So like, that's an element too. like, we, what, what is the cost of destroying this? We need to know the cost of destroying these, this part of the Amazon, like we, in order to, to save it. Right. That would be sort of the counter argument here. And I talked to a lot of people who have devoted their life to this. You have spent, you know, months and months in the Amazon trying to figure out a way to get money to that forest so that like loggers don't cut it down. And like in the absence of like, you know, robust, you know, forestry protection from a, you know, like the Bolsonaro regime, right. In these places where you don't have a good legal structure to prevent people from cutting down these forests. Like there are people of good faith who are entering into the mix who are saying, okay, well we need to figure out a way to take this money from these companies that are, want to make these ESG claims and put it into the hands of this community who can protect this for us. And I think that's, you know, that, that's not necessarily a nefarious impulse at all. It just opens up the possibility for people to make a lot of money <laughs> at the same time. And, and, and there's, um, 
yeah, I mean, there's a lot of potentially perverse incentives, but I wouldn't want to throw the entire impulse under the bus, right? Um, because I met a lot of people in reporting these stories who had devoted their lives to try to save these forests and think that, you know, uh, if they can take money out of the hands of the Pepsis of the world and put them into, you know, indigenous communities who have a relationship with this forest, like they should do it. And, you know, it's hard to tell those people to, 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 to just give up. Or to wait until a new government in Brazil is elected that passes a whole new, you know, like, you know, these are people who are like, we need to do this now. And this is the best possible thing we can do now. And and there is, there is, you know, an argument to be made that in certain cases that makes sense. Could you, you know, walk us through, okay, like, so we have created some of these markets, we have this way to settle or, or move capital you know, then what comes next? How does how does a you know someone who's in this patch of forest or who's trying to stop or conserve this part of the forest take the crypto asset or the digital asset and then use it in a way that helps protect the land? Yeah, so there's all sorts of things going on, right? Like I think uh, in the case of the tokenization of carbon offsets, basically what they've done is there's this pre-existing carbon offset market that exists. And they've just said, like, with to- with tokens and with Web3, we can more easily create, like, a bunch of derivative products and, like, forward contracts and financing options if this is all just done on the blockchain. So the- these companies, you know, there's basically... Some companies have made these like bridges that allow anyone to go buy a bunch of carbon offsets in the traditional markets from a broker and then, you know, prove that to the bridge and then turn them into tokens. Like that's what Toucan has done, which is like this German project, which is basically like an open protocol for anyone to just go a bunch, buy a bunch of carbon credits and then bring them onto the blockchain. Um, And there was a bunch of problems with that that were, you know, uh, uncovered by researchers at this organization called Carbon Plan that realized that, again, there was this tremendous arbitrage opportunity, which is that you could, there was a bunch of credits that were sitting on these exchanges that were actually zombie credits that had no value, but they were still sitting there. And brokers who knew that were able to buy them up for basically nothing, bridge them to crypto. And then they had a value because people didn't realize that they had mixed in these zombie credits into the mix. That's one thing that's happening. Then there's Moss, which we reported on. They do it themselves. Company themselves goes to the projects. They buy a bunch of carbon credits themselves. They have control of the supply. They create the tokens, and then they start buying and selling the tokens to investors, floating them on exchanges. Then there's a whole other universe of refi projects that have a bunch of other different plans. Some of them want to, you know, divorce from the carbon markets, the traditional carbon markets altogether, start their whole new ecosystem, like a GoFundMe sort of situation where, like, if you want to go preserve, you know, the rainforest or something, you can like go and like make a proposal like on this site, and you could get rewarded in tokens, like. Anything you could imagine under the sun, like w- that stuff is getting more momentum because basically, you know, and this stuff is just infinitely complicated, but the traditional registries that had controlled the standardization of carbon credits, this registry called Vera, this other one called Gold Standard, they basically like bugged out because all of these credits were being bought by crypto people and taken onto the blockchain without their permission. So they like froze this in early summer. They said like, stop doing this. This is kind of crazy. Uh, we have no, we have no ability to like do quality control. These two, like our registries were not meant to be big piggy banks or repositories for people to buy a bunch of stuff and turn them into crypto tokens. They're supposed to be places for companies to come and buy offsets and retire them 
in order to offset their emissions, not to create a new derivative project product. So there's a battle going on now between the old school registries and these new projects that we're trying to build on top of them. So then there's new people coming in saying, why don't we recreate the whole ecosystem ourselves? You know, we can, we can do like, we can do it all on crypto. We don't need any of these old school registries, but it, yeah. So that, that it's kind of a, a mess, right? There, there, there's a there's a collision between a legacy system of carbon credits and the old and the new uh, crypto entrants. One of the things that we learned a lot about reporting the story is just like the a lot of these crypto companies had made like massive promises to investors. They were like, "We're going to go into the carbon market space. We're going to make a bunch of money. We're going to turn it around really quickly because like this market is really old and calcified. We're going to disrupt it, and it's going to be really successful." And when it didn't always work out. A lot of these companies became under a lot of pressure, um, and so th- th- that that led to you know this real showdown between the legacy carbon markets and these new crypto people. They were frozen out of the legacy carbon markets. Now they're trying to figure out a new way to do it. But yeah, I mean it's 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 I, I don't have an easy answer for like who what 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 are all the different constellations. I think it fundamentally it's the there these guys' ability to create a token and a marketplace and derivative products out of the blue has allowed them to make a lot of different claims about the linkage between those activities and something happening in nature, right? And there's a lot of people who are trying to take advantage of that uh, opportunity as a, as a business plan because it's a pretty cogent one. I mean, we, you've been mentioning Moss, right? We've talked about Moss a bit. Could you get a little bit more into the details of like the uh, of Moss as a as a company, right? You you have a lot of really interesting reporting that you've done. You know, not just in terms of like what Moss does or claims to do, but also it's it's in, it's oper- it's kind of internal operations. It's CEO and founder, right? Like like, and I think that. This tells us a lot, uh, you know, in a, in a larger sense about how some of these companies that, you know, are kind of, you know, quote unquote pioneering this new green crypto, uh, market are, are like what kind of things are actually driving them or the, or the kinds of people that are kind of in the driver's seat. Yeah, sure. So Moss, yeah, Moss is a Brazilian uh, crypto firm, uh, and it's founded founded by this guy Luis Felipe Daime, who you know has a had a background in, in hedge funds and um, in finance, and you know spent some time on Wall Street. And it, you know, they basically came up with this idea a couple of years ago, 2019, I believe, uh, that they would buy up um, carbon credits. In mass, they would then issue cryptocurrency tokens uh, that would be pegged to those credits and sell them to people as retail investors, companies, and, t- and who are interested, who, who would, it, with the idea that they would, you know, double in value or go go up in value in a huge way. And my colleague Fabio, who I reported the story with, you know, went deep into this company. And he was able to talk to numerous uh, employees, people who had worked there and left, and you know people who still worked there. We were able to get our hands on you know company records, WhatsApp logs, um, internal communications from the company, and you know and, and basically you know what, what we were able to see is that they were making like a lot of 
you know, saying a lot of things publicly that didn't really match up to what was going on in their internal documents. Um, and, you know, they were promising uh, to be providing some, you know, the, the highest quality carbon credits in the world and, and tokenize them. And meanwhile, they were, you know, they had you know, huge disputes with their suppliers. I mean, a lot of this stuff was maybe typical things you would see inside of any sort of company that's engaged in retail with the supply chain issues, right? The way that the company was being framed outwardly was this pioneer, right? This idea that there was there was this new age of green digital assets that anyone, um, I mean, the thing that was most salient to me is this a pitch to retail investors, the idea that you or me could go click on our computer and we could go get, you know, uh, feel good about, you know, helping this Brazilian company save the Amazon by just, you know, spending, you know, a couple dollars online. And we could also make money ourselves because in the future, carbon, the markets were going to explode. And there was a doing well by doing good pitch that was being made here. And in particular, there was, they were making a special appeal, um, that you know, because of their connection to the Amazon and their intimacy with the what was going on in Brazil, they were sort of best placed to be uh, to solve uh, this this green financing gap. And they you know they were quickly listed on all the major exchanges. They were uh, you know a major player in the refi movement from the beginning. They were one of the major partners in ClimaDAO, which ended you know was was this massive uh, uh, green finance kind of. Uh, experiment that saw that launched a token that was worth like a thousand dollars for like forty eight hours, and then like plummeted to like three three dollars or something. Um, and and so like yeah, Mark I Cuban know. was a major investor. Yeah, and Mark Cuban was right? able to make a huge killing off of this, apparently. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one of the other really important thing to understand about Moss is you know they were partnering with some of the biggest uh, companies in Brazil to help them make you know carbon neutral. Uh, uh, pledges, you know, so they 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 partnered with the ma- the biggest Brazilian airline. They partnered with the uh, biggest uh, or huge Brazilian clothing manufacturer. You know, they were trying to get in this business of um, helping companies make uh, pledges or make make public pronouncements about being green by investing or buying uh, into this this token, and they did that. And, and, you know, one of the tranches of our investigation, in fact, was kind of discovering this strange event that happened where they started this partnership with Herring, which is a huge Brazilian clothing manufacturer. And Herring was going publicly and saying, we have helped uh, create, you know, hundreds of green jobs in the forests of Peru. And then Moss internally was like, wait a second, is that true? Do these tokens create hundreds of green jobs? Uh we don't really know actually. Uh, and, and, but so we saw this sort of like internal freak out moment where they're like, wait, uh, they're going and making these claims that the, that these tokens have these jobs are creating all these jobs. We don't actually have any idea what's going on with the jobs. And they, they're like, what? And then they just let it go. And so then this company that gives you a little microcosm of the kinds of like the supply chain breakdown where you have, you can make these claims about what your credits are doing on the ground, where in reality, like, you might not really know what is, and what actually turned out to happen, like now we know, is that actually they were going to a pocket of a you know alleged uh, Chinese gangster, which no one knew at the time, right? So like the the the, the um yeah the, the the downstream effects of 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 these credits is 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 always quite complicated, and and what we found with with Moss is that you know they often didn't do a whole lot of effort that they didn't do the kind of checks that would be required to unearth these things themselves. Yeah, and I mean, you've, you've uncovered 
it's just such a great bit of color uh, that you know uncovered that uh, uh, the the CEO of Moss Adami right was known as the Wolf of Amazon and kind of had uh, the you know Jordan Belfort the the Wolf of Wall Street guy as his profile picture on Slack and 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 you know but then also in the at the same time claimed to be. Uh, you know, as, as you and Fabio write, quote, you know, Moss CEO Adami said he is passionate about using his financial acumen gained in what he called, quote, the dark side of finance, working at hedge funds and investment banks to save his country's endangered rainforest. So on one hand, being, you know, that I, I, you know, I learned the dark arts of finance. Um, I'm also the wolf of Amazon, but I'm also going to save, uh, my, my country's, uh, environment. Yeah, absolutely. And and that all credit goes to Fabio for unearthing those, you know, fantastic details about what was going on behind the scenes. I mean, I think, you know, some people look at like the dark someone who's considers themselves a master of the dark arts of finance and, and saving the Amazon as ideas that are antithetical to themselves. But I think one of the deep insights that I came away with reporting on this world is that it's sort of like there's that cliche, like when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And like when you're like a crypto person, like every problem looks like a lack of markets, right? Like that's kind of what's going on here. Like, cause what crypto can do is create markets. It can, and it's actually quite incredible. Like you, me, you know, Ed, Jeremy, we could all get together and we could like right now use some open source code on the internet and, you know, we could create like, you know, this machine kills coin and we could do it like right now, like, and it could like we could create our own blockchain, like all four of us, like this moment. And like if we convince enough people that like there is some value in it, like we could have a pairing with Ethereum, and we could like like we could link in to like these active markets that exist in the real world, and we could do it like in ten minutes, right? That's probably that's probably like all we could do, right? Like that that's kind of like what you can do with this stuff. But like it is you know, these ability to like whip up like a dex like to create this like a you know a, an automatic market maker and a token link to it in you know like anyone in the world can do it immediately like is you know that's kind of like the nail hammer situation. So these people really, you know, they, their dark art of finance, they see what's going on in the Amazon and they say to themselves, Oh my God, if we only just had like a bunch of markets, forward futures contracts, forward contracts, derivatives, all ba- all that, that were all targeted and pointed at preserving these forests, then these forests would get preserved. Cause like, that's what it's a hammer there. Like the problem is <laughs> a hammer nail situation in, in a big way. Mm-hmm. I, and, and I mean, there's so many ironies with all of this too, where, you know, you've mentioned, you know, you've been laying out how one of the, the kind of key, the key innovations Moss did was kind of, you know, as, as the, the, the title of your and Fabio's, uh, article puts it right as kind of subprime carbon assets, right? Because it looks a lot like, the subprime mortgage, right? It looks a lot like packaging toxic assets up and then, and then selling them on as AAA rated bonds. Um, and, and, you know, it's essentially what they were doing with, you know, high quality versus low car quality carbon assets and all that. And it took you guys digging into the company and its operations to discern this is what's going on. And that's kind of a, uh, you know, that's a, a problem of lack of transparency in the supply chain here, right? But ironically, at the same time, this has been one of the primary, uh, use cases for blockchain, or at least claimed use cases for blockchain is supply chain tracking, right? Like with blockchain, you can have the most 
ethical, accountable, uh, you know, uh, monitored on a on a on a permissionless, you know, but immutable ledger uh, supply chain. So you know exactly where all your coffee beans came from. You know exactly where every single aspect of your sneaker came from. You know, and yet what we see here as the uh, a big problem with with the 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 uh, company like Moss is the total lack of transparency in their supply chain. Yeah, I think that's that's very that's right. I, I think the other thing that's going on here that I think is really interesting that we haven't talked to is talked through is like one of the I think I I, I would argue one of the main one of one main thrust of sort of the crypto worldview is that one thing that's missing is for more 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 people in the world should think about themselves as investors. Right, like this, there's there's a sort of notion of the human subject as as investor, right? Like everyone should be an investor, and everyone should, you know, we shouldn't just be consumers. We should be investors, and we should be participating in the management of companies and DAOs. Like there's this hyper hyper financialized human at the core of this like proposition, right? And so when it comes to the carbon markets, what they were the idea was that like everyone should buy these things. Right. Like grandma should buy these things. Like you should buy these things. Like you, anyone who wants to like, you feel guilty about like, you know, taking a long flight, like you buy them, like, you know, send one to your friend for their wedding. Like you all like in the future, like everyone's going to be like personally buying and selling carbon credits. Right. Which is not how the market exists. Right. For all its faults, the way it exists now is like, if you're a big company and you want to offset your emissions, like you'll pay a broker or an ESG officer to go research deeply a project, you know, and they would probably find the stuff that me and Fabio found. Like if you were a big enough company, they would be like, you don't want this project. They don't have social carbon credits. You don't want that. Or like, Hey, we looked up the guy who like owns the project and actually like he's being accused of being a timber smuggler. Like let's buy the other one. Right. Like you'd have a certain discernment because the way they were like designed was for big companies to like offset their emissions. But the with the crypto people were like, no, 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 like everyone should invest in carbon credits. Like we're, and we're all going to make money on it too. Right. So that was like, that was another thing that like Moss and these companies are trying to do. They want to turn like everyone into an investor. So like, which is the crypto credo then, but when you smash that together with the carbon markets where there's a huge amount of complexity, no one, and no, you know, no one really can be, uh, can master it on their own unless they're uh, spending a huge amount of time doing it. It's, it's, it's too complicated. Like, uh, you know, so you end up having these information asymmetries and it, do, it really does break down. Like the, the individual people were not really capable of like figuring out how wise, uh, how high of a quality of a carbon credit is, you know, it's, there's a carbon credit project. If you go look, there are hundreds of pages of scientific documentation and arguments behind why the project is good or not good, which people you know, get graduate degrees in analyzing, right? Like this is not necessarily a good fit for me as like a casual retail investor to be like deciding between like different environmental projects. Like, so that's also where things broke down here. I think like between the idealized self of like the web three human, which is like, everyone is like an, uh, like a capital allocator, you know, like everyone's like this perfect capital allocating thing. And, actually just how complicated these markets are. So then the people who are ending up pumping up the prices of these tokens who are keeping them artificially inflated are retail investors who don't know that the underlying carbon credits might suck, 
Right. And so like that, and so like the idealized version of the human as investor doesn't really work with an asset of this complexity is is sort of what I I, I came away with, you know, and maybe, maybe there's a better way to do it at this stage. Like Moss's, you know, when I, I talked to a couple people who had bought Moss tokens and they tended to just be like, People who are like, oh, like I'm into crypto. Like I also care about the environment. Like this guy looked legit. Like he was on a podcast that I liked. He sounded smart. Like okay, like I, I get. I'll put five grand into this, and then, like then they would read our story and be like, oh, like I didn't know that social carbon credits traded for two times and not like how would they know right so like you kind of you kind of take advantage of of everyone thinks they can be like a savvy investor and then you kind of take advantage of that information arbitrage and i and i I think that was a big theme in this story so i think then you know one question i have is you know when it comes to these markets where you have a lot of actors that are being assumed to be these perfect capital allocators, but like you said, just don't have the information to know what the asset is and what's inside of it and what's backing it or what isn't. You know, do you sense any sort of cynicism or like clear-eyedness from higher level folks who are planning these markets? But you know, I've seen in other crypto projects where there may be like, hey, like the market isn't working properly. You know, it's not actually functional. It's not actually capital's not flowing where we want it to. But if we just keep pushing and saying that it's working, then we will, by force of having people do the transactions and and putting money in the system and locking it up, build something that can then be what we want it to be. I mean, do you sense that sort of, or do you uh, witness that sort of thing happening here, where you know the markets are not there, the tech doesn't seem to be there, but there's a belief that you can sort of brute force it by driving more and more capital. I mean, so that, yeah, that's a great question because that's basically like the thesis of the Klima DAO, right? Um, which it's very complicated, but basically their idea was like the only way to improve the quality of, they like of carbon offsets is to flood the zone with a bunch, a bunch of money. And they called it cleaning the floor, sweeping the floor. And they're like, okay, if we could just get like a huge torrent of money into the, these carbon uh, offset schemes, we would basically, all the shitty projects would get bought up and then there would be only good ones left. And so then, and so we would like drive up the cost of the asset by just having so much money come in that, um, you know, basically, uh, there would, there would be a supply crunch and only high quality carbon offsets would, uh, would remain, which I never didn't really understand as, as a concept. Um, it doesn't seem to be happening that way. Um, you know, obvi- there's an obvious problem. You can just create new bad quality projects. Yeah, I mean, the, I don't know. The, que- the question of like, you know, what drives people who are doing this? I think they would just, are they trying to brute force something, trying to force a door that doesn't want to open? I mean, their, Ed, like their narrative would be that basically like, and there is some truth to this, is basically like the carbon markets are controlled by a couple of monopoly actors who are these uh, registries like Vera and Gold Standard that control and decide if a carbon offset is good or not, and they don't want us to come in these uh, to come in and disrupt this market because we would take them off the board because blockchain is such a better. Um, it's is such is blockchain is such a better technology than these old school registries that just posted on their PDFs on the internet. They're afraid of us, 
And so they're throwing up all of these boundaries. They're freezing our accounts. They're not letting us tokenize the assets. They're not letting us create these derivatives because they know we're going to put them out of business. Right. And so that would be kind of what they would say. Like they would say that these incumbents are too slow. Uh, they like, if you just let us, um, create carbon offsets and sell them and tokenize them, give it some time. It'll be a new, a, it will be better than the current system is what they would say. And so there, there's this kind of like showdown between like the old and the new, uh, does that make sense? Yeah. I can understand why some of the, uh, refi people are frustrated because, you know, if the premise is that, you know, as you, as you said in the beginning at, you know, citing those, you know, uh, those notions about quantifying and, uh, putting a market price on nature, if you really believe that that is key, to solving the climate crisis. If you think what's really a huge part of this solution is going to be correctly pricing in uh, the cost of uh, preserving nature and having that solved by market mechanisms, then you, I could see why, you know, the crypto people are like, let's do it. Like, let's, let's like, let's, Let's like let's stop messing around with these like nonprofit registries that sort of like kind of do this but are like pretty slow and like you know aren't like you know very cautious about like derivative products and like bundling and like have all of these rules like if if you want to like put a market price on nature like let's pedal to the metal like let's put this on the blockchain. Like let's make a let, let's let a million Uniswap sing here. Like let's like spin off. Like let's do like you know you can imagine like if that's what you believe. If you believe what's missing here is unleashing the true power of putting of, of market pricing preservation of nature. You could be deeply frustrated that like a couple of sort of old registry you know, organizations that aren't that accountable to anybody um, get to control or have a huge say in like what counts as a carbon offset or not, you know? So I I can kind of see that argument. Like it, it is congruent with the worldview of like, you want to do the market? Let's do the market. Like what's the most free market like pricing like thing we could possibly do? Like let anyone who wants to create like a token linked to something happening to nature and just like slang them on the internet and see what sticks against the wall. And like, that's like that, you know, like let's, let's, let's try it all. I think I can kind of see why certain people in the reusify space are frustrated. That they're not really being allowed to do that because they are on a certain level taking the logic to its ultimate conclusion, right? Like you know, there's a way of seeing it that way. It's like, you want to preserve nature with markets, like, Let's let's go to let's do the token thing. You know, I can kind of see it. Uh, you've made a, a, a lot of very incisive points here, and I think everything you just laid out really, I think, crystallizes the kind of idealistic argument or justification for a lot of this. And you know, we uh, you know, on, on on the on TMK, you know, we have done uh, way too much kind of close attention to Web three space, and this is and everything you just laid out is exactly that kind of line of argument here and you know now it's just applied to the carbon markets or to sustainability or or you know this this kind of space of ESG and I think you're exactly right that there are people 
there are a hundred percent are people that like that they truly believe that and like that's what's motivating them right of course we can't crawl inside the head of anybody and know what you know what they truly believe or why they do anything but i i'll i'll, I'll pose a, a more kind of cynical alternative here um which i think is which follows on from a lot of what we've been talking about and follows on in a, a bit more cynical view to the uh the the analysis you laid out just a minute ago around the kind of you know investor subject right this kind of financialized uh this ideal financialized participant in the market um you know you are it's another credo of web3 do your own research right and so the idea is that well if you're buying you know the you know the 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 shitty moss token that's you know a subprime asset bundled with you know low quality uh carbon credits that it's because you didn't do your own research, right? Like you didn't find the right social, you know, credit, uh, standardized carbon asset, um, that, that, you know, is, uh, where, where you should have put your money, right? It's this really individualized aspect. And, and you were totally right as well that, you know, we've, when, in some of our episodes talking about fintech in particular, the, the kind of, the main innovation of fintech is the opening up of these uh, markets and these instruments to retail investors, things that would otherwise be, you know, institutional or governmental uh, markets or, or instruments are now opened up to retail investors and done so in really convenient ways, right? Like this was the, you know, we saw the consequence of this with like Robin Hood exploding during the pandemic, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, Matt Levine who writes the money stuff column for Bloomberg during the pandemic kind of coined what he called, coined what he called the board markets hypothesis, right? Which is that, you know, these kind of meme stocks like GameStop or, or, or Hertz or, or AMC were just the product of people stuck at home, bored, frictionless access to, uh, you know, not only day trading, but like, you know, options and futures and all these like derivative contracts and stuff. And so like what you see is, you know, a, a kind of growing community around this new revitalized retail investing. And that, that, I mean, it is like a big change from fintech. Now I think the idealistic argument you just laid out is this idea that, you know, we'll flood the zone. Uh, it's the wisdom of crowds kind of idea, right? Where it's like, if you get everybody involved, then the average guess of every, of all persons will be the exact number of M&Ms in the jar, right? Like, uh, you know, you'll find the solution if you can kind of decentralize this get get all the monopolies out of the way the incumbent legacy institutions that have a heart you know a grip on all this which to be sure we're against all that as well um i think though there's something else to be said about perhaps uh in in, in a more cynical way maybe what getting a lot of retail investors in this space does is it provides a lot more opportunities for arbitrage, right? A lot more information asymmetries. And so I'm reminded of a piece from that came out last year in Foreign Policy by uh, the futurist Parag Khanna and the angel investor Balaji Sirnivasan. And it was kind of this, you know, they're, they're two vocal advocates of Web3. And in this piece, they're kind of laying out, they're giving us a glimpse of, of, 
of a, of life in a version of Web3 that they are advocating for. And, and they write, quote, Every asset will be traded against every other asset in a gigantic table we call the DeFi matrix. Everyone becomes a foreign exchange trader all the time, and only the best national currencies or cryptocurrencies are ever held by anyone, right? So it's this idea, right, in their techno-utopian anarcho-capitalist uh, vision that the volatility of decentralized finance is not a problem, but an opportunity to take advantage of, right? And all it requires is this idealized inhabitant, this investor subject of Web3, a healthy appetite for risk, and the ability to engage actively and constantly in the market with all the research available to you at your fingertips. Now, for a lot, for the vast majority of people who engage in these markets in these ways, uh, they will be outpaced in every single way by people like Parag Khanna and Balaji Sirnivasan, uh, Luis Felipe Adami, right? Like all of these people, um, will run circles around the 99% of, uh, retail investors who think they know what they're doing because they got a hot tip on, you know, r slash, you know, slash are Wall Street bets or whatever, um, and and they will uh, lose their shirts, right? And and that's great. That's actually really good uh, for people like Parag, Balaji, Luis, right? Like uh, because that that opens up a lot more opportunities for arbitrage, a lot more asymmetries they can take advantage of. And you know what? If you lost uh, all your money, it's because you didn't listen to the eight-hour podcast Balaji Srinivasan just did with Lex Fridman, right? Where he laid out all of his secrets, right? Like you should have listened to that eight-hour podcast episode if you, before investing. That's, that's what do your own research amounts to. I mean, I think that's a more cynical view of uh, why these people um, are, are creating these markets uh, and, and trying to get more people involved in them. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a fair gloss. I mean, I, I, I think that it's important to emphasize when we're talking about at least the carbon markets um, that we were looking at, uh, you know, these are voluntary markets, right? That's what's one thing that's like pretty striking about them, right? Like there are compliance carbon markets that exist, which is, you know, basically there's a law that's been passed that to try to, to reduce the scope of emissions and the mechanism by which the democratic polity has decided that they're going to reduce the emissions is by requiring companies to, you know, instead of paying a tax on that emissions, they have to go buy, you know, they've created a marketplace for, for offsets. And there are problems with those markets as well. But in those markets, there are real consequences for, you know, fraud or for, um, you know, there's, 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 there, you know, there are compliance markets. Like you have to buy these credits, otherwise you're out of compliance. And these voluntary markets are all basically, they, they all exist because, uh, you know, it's a PR problem. For companies to, um, you know, not be green, not be able to say that they're green in their annual reports or in, you know, and so the entire market already exists in this interesting zone of like mm. consumer, uh, you know, consumer as investor as you know, acting out their values vis-a-vis -vis their consumption investment, right? The idea is that like there are companies that are trying to differentiate themselves with consumers by saying like we're green, <laughs> like. 
uh, look at, we've bought all these offsets. Like you want to take our airline versus that airline because like our airline is carbon neutral, right? Because we bought these offsets. That's kind of the, that's the swimming pool we're in. Like that's the, that's the playground here. It's like all kind of this PR area. And then on top of that, then, uh, you know, marketing these offsets to consumers is like kind of interesting. Like if you think about how that layer is on top of that, it's like, you're the consumer, like you're going to on your airline and you're like, uh, I'm gonna, okay, I'll pick like this airline. Cause they say they're green because they bought carbon offsets. And then like, I am also going to like buy carbon offsets as like an investment in my portfolio, because I think that like more and more airlines are going to be like buying carbon offsets because of consumers like me, right. It creates this whole world in which like your preferences around a green economy are like refracted around you where like you're investing in the credits and you're like choosing companies that are also buying the credits. And like, it, there's this kind of like, you know, maybe there is like a vision where like that works and that like solves the climate crisis. Maybe like, maybe that's, maybe that's how we solve the climate crisis, right? Like everyone's like consuming from companies that buy offsets and consuming their own offsets and the offsets go up in price and everyone makes money and like the Amazon gets saved. I mean, that's kind of like the ultimate vision of what's happening here. I mean, I think marketing to consumers uh, the idea of like wisdom of the crowds around a green asset. I mean, I think that the the fundamental problem is these were not intended as investments. They were intent. Like there is a legitimate thing here, which is that like scope three emissions, like there are certain emissions of certain industries that are almost impossible to eliminate. Like if you run a, if you run, you know, a cement factory, like you're going to have emissions. You can't, the technology that does not exist right now to do cement without emissions, right? You can't do it. We need cement. Like we need to build stuff out of cement like tomorrow or like people are going to be unhoused, right? Like there are certain fundamental things where like the technology has not, you can't do a thing completely greenly, but you need to do the thing right now. The question becomes like, what do you do in that moment? Right. And like, it's a decent answer to be like, okay, well in that instance, we're going to give money to someone else to do something good. Cause that's the best we can do right now. Right. And that's kind of like, you know, what carbon markets are supposed to be like at their best version. Like once a company has reduced all their emissions to the bare bones, they can, they have like this little thing they can't reduce. Cause we don't have the tech yet. They want to do good. So they want to give money to someone else who's pledged to do something good. Right. Like that is kind of like the, the theory of the thing, but like that's really different than like, game stopping the carbon markets right which is what like which is literally what like people involved in this world have called what they're doing right like let's get everyone super stoked about carbon markets let's buy a bunch of carbon credits let's hold them let's jack up the price we're all going to make a lot of money like that's not the same as being like you're a really responsible company that can't figure out what to do with like its last three percent of emissions so you're going to go find someone in brazil who's really responsible who has a good linkage with an indigenous tribe they need some money to secure a forest and you're going to hook them up with it right like that that's a world apart from like we're all hoarding tokens but like they're kind of all that worlds have kind of collided here right and like that's kind of what we're dealing with so i i would say i'm not like entirely cynical about the notion of figuring out a way if, if you're engaged in a business like construction or doing a thing that we need to do as a society and you want to do something to offset those emissions that you really can't squeeze out and you want to go give that money to someone in Brazil. Like, I mean, I don't think that's inherently, I mean, there's a good, there are ways it can work. And there's, as we've discussed for the last hour, there's ways it can really go wrong. 
I think you've really outlined uh, some very crucial distinctions here. It, 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 it almost seems like the the logical conclusion of like the genre of of like hustler grind set mindset, you know, Instagram and TikTok that got really popular, especially during the pandemic. Of like, you know, everybody needs to become an LLC. You know, you need to you need to become an LLC and you need to act like an LLC. And this distinction you're drawing here between because. Buying retailers or consumers buying uh, carbon offsets is not a totally new thing. Like, you know, it's, it's an add on that you can do when you're like buying a flight, right? Like you can be like, yeah, I'll pay a little bit extra to offset the carbon. Um, you know, but that's more about like, trying to assuage your own guilt, doing a little bit of what you think is maybe an ethical, you know, a bit more ethical consumerism, um, you know, of course, from everything I've heard about those those things, a lot of them are scams anyways, and they're not actually doing any kind of carbon offsetting. In addition, you know, in the first place, or if they are, I mean, the time horizon of uh, the carbon offsetting is so long that it's like, you know, carbon emitted now is not going to be offset by uh, already existing trees, let alone trees not yet planted for like you know, a very, very long time. Um, so all of those are problems. But anyway, it's a distinction, right? Where it's like a bit trying to do more ethical consumerism. But what you are describing, uh, and and you're you know in the piece that you and Fabio reported out is describing how this is kind of working on the ground is this idea of you know it's no longer ethical consumerism. It is about accumulating assets, right? And and I think that is. Uh, a, a, a remarkably important distinction here um, with how uh, the the kind of financialization of these uh, of, of carbon offsets, carbon tokens, and and assets, and all of that. I mean, you have what you have to understand is there is a rich base of people, like online the type investor types, who you know see themselves as sort of like galaxy brain galaxy genius types who like see this mckinsey report and they're like aha right there's gonna be a huge demand for carbon credits in the future i have read the mckinsey report i will buy a bunch of carbon credits and then i will put them under my bed and in 20 (laughs) years as mckinsey has predicted i will now be sitting on an asset that is in high demand, right? Like there's a bit of that going on. Right. And then there's also people who genuinely believe like, you know, all, all of what I said earlier, which is like these markets are helpful for green stuff. But like when you, when you're financing something on the other side of the planet that you don't truly understand, like things get messy quickly. Like I reported another story with actually another Brazilian colleague of mine named Andre, uh, recently about like this, uh, company that sells like NFTs that they say, uh, help them fund buying, uh, preserving like parts of the Amazon as well. Right. And it was like a whole nother thing where this company was like, and I talked to people who were involved in this and it was sort of like, they said like, wouldn't it be great? It's called Nemus. And they were like, wouldn't it be great if like people in America or like people far away could like give money and that that money could be used to like, buy an NFT that's linked to like some land preservation in the Amazon. And then we could put like cameras on the land. So we could like see that people aren't cutting down the trees and we could like use the money to like patrol the land. So we could like, and that was like the whole value pitch of this company. And they went and they convinced like all of these people, like, 
you know, in Europe and in, in, in the US to like put up money in exchange for these NFTs, which were also linked to like a, a strange trading card game that was sort of like a weird magic, the gathering meets like um, critters in the Amazon. Like it didn't look very fun, but it, it was some trading card game that you got access to by buying these NFTs that was supposedly preserving this land in the Amazon. And then like, my what my colleague found out is like this company didn't even own the land, like you know, like they, they didn't like own the land. Like they had plans to buy the land, kind of. Yeah. But like they weren't necessarily allowed to own the land because like the land might be an indigenous preserve, and but they had just like gone ahead and sold these NFTs and like were kind of like you know we're like but the Brazilian prosecutors were like investigating them for like maybe kind of Christopher Columbusing the land from the native, like it was really weird, like really quickly. Right. And the people I talked to who invested in this were just like, Hey, like I saw pictures of this land and like, it looked like it needed preserving. And like, I really believe in refi. And so I threw some money behind this because I thought it was an interesting project. Right. So you have that dynamic going on where you just like, can you really like fund something? (laughs) Like you need a lot of trust to like fund a project in a part of the world you know nothing about to like preser- to like trust that the people are actually doing the right thing like and 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 it, just because something's happening on the blockchain doesn't mean that they're doing the right thing right and just because they're part of the refi community doesn't mean they can't take native people's lands like they can't right they can just so the, i think there's an element of like when you get retail investors involved and when you get everyday people involved in this stuff and you have people who kind of have good intentions and sort of believe broadly in the web3 movement and believe in crypto you know there is a lot of there is a decent amount of money sitting around like that's that's that'll get slung at these projects you know and there are people willing to spin up some pretty strange ideas you know like nft magic the gathering in the amazon trading card game like i don't know i mean they i can't remember off the top of my head how much money they raised but it was like hundreds of thousands of dollars might have been millions of dollars it wasn't like huge right but it was like real money like Mm. you know so yeah i think that, that getting retail investors involved in this kind of stuff when the proposition is like retail investor money is going to be funding socially conscious activity in the middle of nowhere trust us. Like, I don't know, like that, that, that in and of itself is, is not always going to work out. Right. It feels like they, uh, they came up with the idea, that idea over a round of cards against humanity, because it's <laughs> yeah. like all sound like individual cards that they just pulled out of a deck and they're like, we're going to rip people off by magic, the gathering cards and the Amazon and NFTs. And they just rolled with it. Yeah, I don't even know what's. I mean, we're still trying to get. To, honestly, we're still trying to get to the bottom of what's going on there. Like, mm. we don't. It's so hard to get to. Like, it's so far away. Like, for Fabio to go to Colnisa, which is the town in in um, the Amazon that we reported from, that we discovered basically that there was all this these social project promises that were supposed to be attached to the token had never been. Uh, done and they didn't build a school. They promised they'd build a school. They they promised they would build good jobs. The jobs were not good. Like w- w- in order to like poke a hole in that, like just like that required. I think the guy. I mean, poor guy. Like it was. I think like two planes, two commercial flights, a private plane, and like a ten-hour bus ride. Like Brazil is huge, and the Amazon, yeah. like the people, like far-flung Amazon places, like are it's crazy to get to these places. Like it takes days. 
you often need a private plane. Like is like, so the, like for people to be selling verification, like activity, getting paid to do things in this place, these places where, you know, how do you verify that it's happened? I mean, there's so much possibility for, for subterfuge here. Right. And then the other thing we haven't talked about is like the whole, the emerging pitch from a lot of people in the carbon markets and in the web three spaces, don't worry, like we're going to do it with satellites. So that's like the big thing right now, right? MRV, like remote. We don't even need to go anywhere because like all of this stuff is going to be verified using satellite imagery. So that's kind of like the, like a lot of this verification of project stuff that's happened in the past. They're trying to automate it, which was like, came to like a quite absurd end in this NFT project. Cause they were like, let's put a camera on every tree in the Amazon, which I think they're not actually going to do, but that was like something that, that was discussed. Um, but yeah, like how do you how do you pay for far flung social good? How do you how do you sit at a computer in Berlin or London or LA and click and guarantee that the thing you're doing is actually saving a forest in a part of the world you know nothing about with people whose culture you know nothing about? Like maybe it's not that easy, right? Like the answer is maybe that doesn't work. Well, you know, as as Reagan would famously say, trust but verify. The beautiful yeah. thing about blockchain is you don't need no trust and you don't need no verification. <laughs> well, so. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's interesting about all of this is like, yeah, I mean, you can verify that you you can verify, you know, that the token was created and who did it and what wallet did it and who's it's transferred to. But the actual real world activity that the token yeah. represents is just the same, the same problem you there always have with these kinds of things. And I think that was one of the things that drew me to this uh, tranche of reporting was sort of like, let's start looking at like, <laughs> I was looking around for like things that, that web three projects were like actually trying to solve. And I spent some time like fooling around with like, there's this project, I think it's called like audience or something that's trying to like Spotify with web three. And then like, obviously there's like, you know, Ed, you did all this amazing reporting on Axie, right? That's another element. Like you know, there's these kind of like things which are like, when web three is actually like touched down into the real, like it spends most of its time, like up here, sort of like in Balaji's mind, but then like every once in a while, it like actually a light, like touches down on planet earth and does a thing. And like, you know, they, it, and it, that happened in the Philippines. It did a thing. It's done a thing in the Amazon, like, you know, but there, it, 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 it you kind of have to look around. It's, definitely done a thing at power plants and transmission lines all across the United States. Uh, if you're interested in the, you know, energy usage of proof of work, but like, yeah, there's not that many points of connection between like this thing that's floating in the ether and the world we all live in. So, you know, you kind of have to look around for it. Um, and yeah, I think that this stuff with the environment is one, one point of connection. And I think as we, as said at the outset, like, can learn a lot about the tendencies of this technology, what kind of problems it can solve, what kind of problems it can't solve, what kind of new problems it creates by looking at the way it interacts with, you know, green finance. And you can also by turn learn a lot about green finance uh, by looking at where it touches crypto. I think that is a fantastic bookend for the episode, right? Like, you know, that, 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 that point of collision between green finance and crypto, uh, is, you know, 
very interesting. And as your and Fabio's article on Reuters, um, there'll be a link to that in the episode description, of course, you know, as that article really shows it, it shows that, that one of those point, those points of touchdown, uh, those points of contact where something, something really abstract is happening in a way that is, uh, really quite material. Um, and so I, uh, you know, implore everybody go read the article. It's very interesting, very detailed. Uh, gets more, you know, even more into the weeds of some of the stuff that we've been talking about in this episode. Uh, so that's great. Um, Avi, where can, where else can people find you and find your work? You can find my stories on the Thompson Reuters Foundation's news website, which is uh, context.news. Um, and you can also find them on the Reuters Wire. I work for the nonprofit arm of the Tom- of Thompson Reuters, the Thompson Reuters Foundation. And you can also find me on Twitter uh, at AA Shapiro, tweeting the appropriate uh, amount uh, from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll put a link to your Twitter, put a link to uh, to the article um, and all that. So that's great. And everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash thismachinekills for an additional premium episode every single week. We have just started um, a couple weeks ago our new our newest installment of the TMK book club. So, and, you know, very... Uh, appropriate for our conversation today. We'll be uh, talking about on the uh, premium fee later this week, um, you know, the second chapter of An Engine, Not a Camera by, uh, by the sociologist Donald McNeil. So looking at how financial models shape markets. So really looking at how the kind of the theory of finance and economics actually shapes and bends the, the practice of finance and economics to its will. Uh, so that's, that's a classic book in the social studies of finance. So follow us there on Patreon for those episodes, plus many, many more. Uh, and until then, later. Adios.